This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. There are numerous ways that workers are hamstrung by our healthcare system. One of the big ones is that your health insurance effectively evaporates when you lose a job. Michael Cannon is author of the healthcare chapter in the new Cato Institute book, Empowering the New American Worker. We spoke earlier this month. You and I have talked about this on numerous occasions, but not directly, I suppose, which is the idea of, uh, in particular, health insurance as something that severely limits the range of options that a lot of workers have. Right. The It's not the health insurance that limits their options. It's federal tax policy that limits their health insurance options. If a worker wants to take you know, $16,000 of their, of their compensation package, uh, as in the form of health benefits from their employer, the government doesn't tax it, leaves that $16,000 alone. It's almost like a libertarian paradise because there's no taxation of that $16,000. And isn't that wonderful? But if the worker wants to take that $16,000 as cash and choose their own health insurance rather than have their employer choose it and choose health insurance that meets their needs rather than their employer's needs, choose health insurance that stays with them between jobs so that they don't get sick and then lose their coverage and then have an uninsured and uninsurable pre-existing condition, health insurance that provides them lifetime insurance rather than for just a period of their life. Well, if they want to take their $16,000 and do that, buy that kind of health insurance, then they have to pay taxes on that $16,000. We're no longer living in Libertopia. The government uh, subjects that $16,000 to the payroll tax uh, and to the income tax. And that means they lose about a third of it on average. That third that they lose, that that 33% average marginal tax rate that they have to pay is an implicit penalty. The government doesn't say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to penalize you if you want to make your own health insurance choices. But it kind of does that. I mean, it, it effectively does that because you have to pay more money to the government if you want to make your health insurance choices. And so, so the tax code, the income tax, really, for as long as there has been a federal income tax, has denied workers their right to make their own health insurance decisions by penalizing them if they want to do that. And that has had all sorts of horrible effects on, well, the labor market, but also on workers and their access to health insurance and medical care, and has caused the cracks in our health sector to widen so that more and more people follow through over time. And government has had to has tried to do uh, 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 patch after patch for almost 100 years now. And those patches aren't working because Congress still hasn't fixed the original problem, what I call the original sin of federal health policy, which is the income tax and this, what we call tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this original sin, as you identify it, was intended to be a labor market intervention on behalf of 
some employers. So the the original sin is the creation of a federal income tax that excludes this form of income, employer-sponsored health benefits, from that tax, which then creates this implicit penalty. And it came at a time when very few employers were offering health benefits. I mean, health insurance hadn't really taken off in 1913 when Congress uh, uh, created the the second federal income tax. And uh, that's partly because uh, there wasn't much medicine could do for you and it wasn't very expensive. So not many people needed health insurance. Uh, but some employers did offer access to medical care. And that's fine. It's perfectly uh, a reasonable, acceptable way for employers to compensate their employees. And because it was so rare and because Congress, as usual, didn't know what it was doing, uh, Congress didn't say anything in the statute authorizing of the second federal income income tax about whether these this form of compensation would count as income the federal bureaucrats who were who, who had to implement the income tax realized wait a second this is actually a really thorny question how are we going to do this and it was so complicated they just threw up their hands and said we're not going to tax employer provided health insurance and thus this uh distortion this th- this tax distortion uh, that has wrought havoc with the markets for labor, for health insurance, and for medical care came into being. So give me a sense of uh, what workers get out of the elimination of that exclusion. And I know, I know this is a federal policy, but I also want to get to what states can do as well. So... The $16,000 I mentioned is not a number that I just picked out of thin air. That's how much employers spend on or employers pay toward employer-sponsored health insurance for the average worker with an employer-sponsored family plan, family health plan. $16,000 of a worker that worker's income. Uh, it it never enters that worker's salary. The worker never gets their fingers on it. It's their money. It's their compensation, but they don't get to control it. The employer does. And that's entirely because the federal government penalizes them if they want to control that $16,000. So if Congress were to reform the federal tax code, to eliminate this penalty on workers controlling their own health insurance dollars. Well, then, workers could take that $16,000 as cash and choose where they purchase their health insurance. They could stay with their employer plan. They could buy uh, a a different uh, plan, one that stays with them between jobs. And they wouldn't have to face that penalty. Shifting that $16,000 from the control of employers to the control of the workers who earned it is effectively a tax cut. And so that would be a huge tax cut. I mean, it's not a tax cut in the sense that the government, that we have, that we're currently sending that money to government and then we won't have to anymore. Uh, But it is uh, money that we don't get to control because of the tax code. And then if you change the tax code to let us control that in, in, in my book, that's effectively a tax cut, and it would be an enormous tax cut. For workers with family coverage, 
they would get to control on average $16,000 of their earnings that they currently do not get to control. And if you look across all workers with single coverage, family coverage, across the entire economy, that's $1 trillion per year that right now they have earned, but they don't get to control. Their employers control it. And if Congress reforms the tax code, then workers will get to control that trillion dollars. That is a larger share of the economy than the Reagan tax cuts returned to the uh, to the people who earned it in 1981. The Reagan tax cuts returned about 3% of GDP to the people who earned it. And if Congress reforms the tax code so that workers can control this money, that will return 4% of GDP to the people who earned it. So it is a substan- it would be a substantially larger effective tax cut than the Reagan tax cuts of 1981. What can states do on behalf of workers uh, with respect to health coverage or health policy broadly? It's a good question because this is not solely a federal tax policy issue. In, in states that have an income tax, they all do the, the same thing the federal government does. They exclude from the income tax base employer payments toward employee health insurance, toward employer-sponsored health insurance. And uh, so what states can do is they can take the lead. They can say, look, we are not going to tax those funds if the employer gives those funds to the worker in um, a health savings account so the worker can put that money toward their health savings account. Uh, It would get a little bit tricky because... uh, it's not clear whether the state saying you can put more money into a health savings account uh, so that the worker can receive that money without state income tax penalties is going to have any effect at all uh, because there would still be large federal income tax penalties. But if states do that, that would signal support for the idea and help build momentum to get Congress to make this sort of change. Obviously, health insurance uh, is a big part of this and the degree to which feds and states have sort of uh, gummed up the works of letting people do what they want with the money that they earned. But there are a whole lot of policy interventions that states and the feds have engaged in that have uh, made accessing health care a lot more difficult. That's right. Uh, we mentioned the original sin of federal health policy was the income tax and the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance. The original sin of state health policy was when, uh, around the same time, at the beginning of the 20th century, states began telling uh, people that if you want to practice medicine, you have to get permission from the government. Now, this sounds like uh, a, a reasonable idea because you don't want quacks out there misleading people with ineffective or harmful treatments. But as it turns out, having government decide who could practice medicine turns out to be such an incredibly cumbersome uh, task uh, that uh, and one that is so subject to capture by the regulated industry that rather than increase the quality of medical care that people receive, government licensing of clinicians, of health professionals, has actually reduced the quality of care and 
dramatically increase the cost of care so that patients are worse off rather than better off as a result of clinician licensing. This comes up in all sorts of ways. The uh, it's it, it is largely impossible for patients to engage in telehealth consultations, uh, Zoom calls with doctors in another state, unless that doctor has a license in the state where the patient uh, is sitting. That's because clinician licensing, which happens on the state level, says unless you have a license from this state, I live in the state of Virginia, unless you have a license from the state of Virginia, you cannot treat a patient who is in Virginia. That means that patients in Virginia They don't have access to the best doctors in the country. They only have access to the best doctors in Virginia. Remember, clinician license, and this is a result of clinician licensing. Remember, the purpose of clinician licensing is to improve the quality of care. Right there, it's reducing the quality of care that people receive. Uh, It's also, there's also a literature uh, that, that demonstrates that nurse practitioners, when it comes to primary care, provide care that is just as good as what doctors provide, and when they uh, when they reach the limits of their competence, they then refer the patients to doctors. But when it comes to to primary care that that they have received training to provide, they do just as well as doctors do, and they do it at a lower cost. Nurse practitioner staff clinics can reduce the cost of a primary care visit by thirty five percent. But as a result of giving government the power to license healthcare providers. Doctors have lobbied the government to restrict the services that nurse practitioners can provide and whether they can practice independently of doctors, uh, requiring them to uh, often work under the supervision of doctors and pay them tens of thousands, pay doctors tens of thousands of dollars a year uh, per year uh, for those arrangements. That has restricted the availability of the uh, restricted patients' access to care. By making it harder for them to find a primary care uh, provider, by reducing the number of nurse practitioners who can who can provide primary care, by increasing the prices that patients have to pay for primary care, leaving patients worse off. And there are all sorts of these types of limitations on how clinicians can practice, where they can practice. Uh, that are the result of government regulation. And we haven't even gotten into how physicians have blocked entire models of delivery that could be improving the quality of care, doing things like coordinating care, reducing medical errors better than uh, existing models do, that clinician licensing has also allowed uh, uh, physicians to uh, have the power to block. So what do we do about this? Uh, this is the original sin of, of state-level health policy. Uh, the simplest thing that states can do, I, I, what states should do, is they should eliminate clinician licensing. They should just repeal those laws because those laws don't really add any quality protections to the protections that would exist in the absence of clinician licensing. Protections like the medical malpractice system and quality competition, uh, third-party certification of clinicians and uh, board certification and so forth. Government licensing of clinicians adds nothing. But if, if that's too big a step, states should at least do what Arizona has endeavored to do when it comes to occupational licensing, which is just to recognize the licenses that other states issue. So that if you are a patient in Virginia, you should be able to consult with any doctor around the country via telemedicine, uh, via telehealth, 
without that clinician having to obtain a Virginia license as well, which can be very uh, costly. And this is why a lot of clinicians don't do it. You also, uh, that would also give that clinician the right to come to Virginia and treat you here in Virginia, just as you could travel to Boston or Washington State or California in order to receive care from that clinician. They should be able to come here and treat you and even come to uh, go to uh, uh, impoverished areas of the country and give away free medical care. Clinician licensing actually blocks that from happening as well. So universal license recognition would open up the market for clinician services and stop clinician licensing from being the incredibly cumbersome uh, barrier to entry and price and quality competition that it is right now. Michael Cannon is author of the healthcare chapter of the new Cato Institute book, Empowering the New American Worker. It is that time of year again when I ask you, yes, you, to become a Cato podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started.